Welcome to today's episode of Think of the Children, an audio newsletter about the intersection of parenting and education. I'm Emily Popek, and my guest today is Carrie O'Driscoll, author of Happy Healthy Teens, Why Focusing on Relationship Works, and founder of The Self Project. I really enjoyed talking to Carrie about the teenage brain and how we can build better relationships with the teens in our lives, and I hope you enjoyed listening as well. So Carrie, I'm going to invite you to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about yourself and about your work. Um, I am Carrie O'Driscoll and I am a writer and also the founder of an organization called The Self Project, which is focused on helping teens create healthy relationship. Um, So I work with parents and educators of teens and also teens to really kind of develop those social emotional skills around relationships and healthy boundaries and um, having difficult conversations and building self-awareness. And then I'm the author of a social emotional learning curriculum for middle and high school student um, and the author of a memoir that came out in 2020. And then my most recent book is called Happy Healthy Teens, Why Focusing on Relationships Works. And that book is really for parents and educators of adolescents to really help focus on relationship. So I would love to hear about why this book is necessary, why this work is necessary, or another way of answering that question would be, why do you think we aren't already doing the things that you're recommending that we do? Like what's the the need that this book is meeting sort of in the culture of parenting and education? I think we really struggle with thinking that that teens need structure and discipline and time management skills. And, you know, they need, there's all these things that they need to check off. You know, they need to have service hours and they need to have extracurricular activities and they need to, you know, take X amount of AP courses and, you know, all of these things. But one of the things that we're not taking into account is the really unique attributes of the adolescent brain because of the way the adolescent brain is developing, our approach to a lot of these kinds of things is actually way more detrimental than it is beneficial. And so that's why I wrote this book. And that's why I founded the self project was so that we could be really intentional and thoughtful about how we work with adolescents and how we help them understand what it is that's happening within them so that we can actually create a scenario where they can be more successful at a lot of these things. Yeah, I would love to hear you say more about, you know, maybe about some of the barriers that are that you see getting in the way of this work. You know, I know you mentioned that sometimes it sort of becomes like this checklist. You got to check all the boxes, right? So that's one thing that maybe um, gets in the way of people approaching this from a more like relational standpoint. Are there other things that you see when you work with parents or educators that maybe um, are getting in the way of the type of approach that you would recommend? I think a lot of us tend to just assume that teenagers are little adults in a lot of ways. And so we, some of the demands that we place on them, you know, why can't you just sort of figure out this time management thing and get all of your stuff taken care of, right? Why can't you stop freaking out about that one thing and sort of chill out, right? You know, so some of the demands that we make on them are things that actually, like their brains are actually not ready to do yet. 
what we know is that all human beings learn better within the context of relationship. And yet we are not creating those contexts for our young people, but we're expecting them to learn so many different things within a really short period of time. We want them to learn you know, logistical things. We want them to learn calculus and physics and you know, Mandarin Chinese, but we also want them to learn how to be in relationship with peers and how to stay in relationship with family members and what it means to manage your time. And, you know, there's so many things, you know, how to do your own laundry and all of those life skill kinds of things, right? We're asking them to, to know all of those things or learn all of those things in really, really rapid succession, but we're not creating the conditions in which that's actually going to happen because we're not doing it in relationship. We're just putting these demands out there. And we're also not taking into account the way the human brain processes information. You know, we weren't, our brains weren't designed to be trash compactors. So we weren't designed to, you know, get up in the morning and every 55 or 80 minutes change from one subject to the next all day long. And then 12 hours later, start doing three and a half hours worth of homework from that class that you took at 7.30 this morning and actually be able to remember and contextualize any of that stuff because you piled in six other subjects worth of stuff on top of that, right? We have a lot of unrealistic expectations. And again, it's you know not a shame or blame thing. It's just, I think once we can begin to understand how the teenage brain actually functions best, then we can start to shift some of the things that we do. So mm-hmm. I wonder what the other side of that coin might look like. If there was a school that was built around the things that you're describing, mm-hmm. what are some of the key ways in which that might be different from, from what school looks like now? You know, one of the things is to not focus on as much on information, but focus more on context, right? So, so maybe instead of lecturing at you for 45 minutes, I'm going to give you this, a little bit of this information. Maybe your homework is to, you know, read this thing for 15 minutes where you get this information. And then we're going to spend 45 or 50 minutes in class talking about this, right? You talk about this with your peers. You're going to like have this sort of interaction. How do I make meaning of this? How do I find context for this? And then instead of having, you know, five or eight minutes between classes to just literally physically get from point A to point B, you know, sit and like have some daydreaming time built in. I know that doesn't seem super efficient from a systems perspective, but you know, if I've just had this really riveting conversation in my social studies class and I have a little daydreaming time built in, I might actually remember this other thing that happened in my English literature class that actually really has a lot to do with that thing we were just talking about in social studies, right? You can start to make these connections, which is exactly what the adolescent brain is designed to do. Their, that, their brains are just starting to really go from this black and white thinking to this sort of abstract creative thinking. And so the more opportunities and the more time we give them to collaborate with peers and and daydream and doodle and have conversations that aren't really structured, the more creative they can be. And they're going to come up with these amazing ideas. You know, maybe you're in a classroom with 
teachers from three different disciplines at the same time. And they're all collaborating on like, we're going to talk about social studies and history and English literature all within the context of this one thing. And maybe we spend half a day on it and you guys get to draw about it, or, you know, you can, you can write a poem about it, or you can have these conversations where, you know, you're thinking outside the box, what if, you know, then we're taking advantage of the way the adolescent brain works. I would love to know what are any myths that you want to bust about teens? or any stereotypes about adolescence that you wish we could kind of move away from as a culture? I know you kind of spoken already to the fact that there's maybe these unrealistic expectations for what adolescents are actually capable of doing. Um, Does anything else come to mind for you? Any sort of stereotypes or myths about the American adolescent that you kind of wish we could move past? Yeah, I mean, one of the ones that I really hate is that people get, are are like, they're so emotional, right? They're so, they're either, you know, really, really emotional or like a lot of people will complain to me, you know, that their teenage sons tend to have zero emotion whatsoever, right? And there's this whole, like, they're, it's just, they're so dramatic. There's so much drama, right? And what we know, first of all, there's a physiological reason for that, right? The amygdala, which is the fight, flight, freeze center of the human brain, is physically swollen to three times its normal size during adolescence. And I mean that, so everything is filtered through the the lizard brain that is emotion, right? During those adolescent years. And there's a reason for that because historically that's when human beings started to leave, right? Like back in the caveman days, right? When I was an adolescent, I'm gonna get married and sort of go off on my own, right? And that fight, that heightened fight, flight, freeze response was there to make us pay attention, right? Like we, okay, I need to be on alert. Still, adolescents are really, really primed to take risks. They're designed to take risks and that's how they learn. And so that heightened emotionality is really, really an important tool for them (laughs) to be like, is this risk really stupid or (laughs) like it's there to sort of keep them alive. Right. And so instead of gaslighting our kids or, you know, rolling our eyes at them and saying, Oh my God, would you just get over it already? If we can recognize that as an evolutionary tool, then as educators and parents, we can help them begin to engage the logical thinking part of their brain so that they can figure out which risks are worth it, which risks are important to take, right? And so for some kids, you know, it's like, I can't even risk making a new friend, right? Like that feels way too anxiety producing. And for other kids, you know, that's, I mean, every kid is wired slightly differently, but when we're in relationship with them and we are acknowledging that yes, these emotions are really huge and they are serving a purpose. Then we as the adults with the fully formed prefrontal cortex can help them kind of connect those dots and shepherd them through those really highly emotional times to sort of figure out what is a good risk? What is a healthy risk? How can I start to put myself out there in the world and know that I'm going to have some degree of success 
So I, yeah, I get really frustrated when people are just like, oh my God, the drama, you know, where they freak out about everything. It's like, yeah, but it's our job to like help them metabolize that and contextualize it and start to engage the other part of their brain, which they're developing as we speak. So that's definitely one of them. The other one that frustrates me is when people will say that teenagers are just lazy because if we look at the amount of energy that is required to navigate all of the things they're navigating just logistically, and you pile on top of that, the hormonal changes and the physiological brain changes that are happening and the physical changes. I mean, during adolescence, they actually require way more rest than any of them are getting at all. And also they require downtime to daydream, to goof off, to just be so, you know, when people say, you know, my teenage, my teenagers lazy, they don't, you know, they just want to sleep all weekend. It's like, look at what they're doing during the week, right? Look at what we're asking them to do, which is more than any other generation of adolescents has ever been asked to do in the history of humanity. And let's not normalize that. (laughs) Right. Right. And I, I think it's interesting too. And I wonder, I wonder if you agree that this is the case that I wonder if sometimes that sort of complaint about, you know, my child is lazy. They just want to spend the whole weekend in their room, whatever. Like, do you think part of that is ever hurt feelings from the parent that their child isn't spending more time with them? Sometimes those complaints about behavior are because we're not getting what we want out of the relationship right? Exactly. Exactly. I think that that's a lot of it. I think another big piece of it, which is something I touch on in the book is that, you know, we have certain expectations that we were brought up with, right? Like that voice in our head and that's telling us, you know, like, well, when I was your age, you know, my parents expected me to work and I had a job on the weekend and, you know, right. So, you know, there's some of this in the book where I ask parents to kind of unpack your own stuff. Like how were you raised and how much of the way you're reacting to your kid came from the expectations that were placed on you when you were a teenager and, you know, are those realistic given what, you know, the time that we're living in right now, given the socioeconomic status, maybe that you have, um, you know, given who your kid is as an individual human being, all of those things. And also the other thing I ask parents a lot when I work with them, when they start unpacking those kinds of things, I will say to them, okay, so, you know, and they'll say something like, yeah, my parents were, you know, on me cracking the whip all the time. And I'll say, and how did that affect your relationship with your parents? Well, I didn't want to hang out with them. I didn't want to be around them. Didn't make me feel good. Okay. And that's exactly what you're doing to your kids. So once we start to kind of unpack that stuff and figure it out, right? If I'm saying to my kid that they're lazy because my, really my feelings are hurt because I want them to go for a walk with me and the dog, that's not going to help our relationship. But if I can unpack that and figure it out and say to my daughter, I know you're resting. Is there a time where like, maybe we could just go get a coffee together or some ice cream, or would you be interested in walking the dog with me? Cause I'd really just like to have some chill time to hang out with you. No agenda. I just want to hang out with you. That's going to feel a heck of a lot better than <laughs> you're so lazy. Get out of your room and take the dog for a walk. Right. <laughs> right. And it's, and it's more honest when your kids were younger, when you had younger kids in your house, 
uh, where were the kids when you were working? Because we all know that the workday and the school day aren't the same length. Mm-hmm. So how did that, what did that look like for you? Um, well, I'm lucky enough that I, I, you know, I always work for myself. So I was able to work from home. Um, and to be honest, when laptops were invented, that was like my favorite thing in the whole world. Cause I could literally be in the kitchen working while they were making an after-school snack for themselves. Right. Or we could all be sitting at the dining room table doing, they, they were doing their homework and I would be working, you know, right there as well. So yeah, there were a lot of times where I, I was just in the mix with them working or I would work you know, while they were at school as well, take that time. Sometimes I would bring my laptop to, you know, lacrosse practice and sit at the bleachers and, you know, work while they were at practice. So, I mean, my work was visible to them, but also I was really careful to, if somebody needed my attention for something, that's the other thing I love about the laptop is I would close the laptop and make eye contact with them. When I could, you know, if I'm in the middle of something, I'd say, give me three minutes, let me finish this email. And then I made it a practice to always make eye eye contact with my kids. If I was speaking with them, I was not going to be looking at a screen and talking to my kid who's over here because that feels really gross to me. It's a tough balancing act for me sometimes, all that stuff. I would love to hear too. And you were, we were just talking about this a little bit about those sort of generational things or the things that we have brought with us from our own childhoods. Can you name something that you have chosen to do differently as a parent compared to your own family of origin? (laughs) Everything (laughs) really, honestly, for the most part. Um, Yeah. I mean, my parents were baby boomers and they were very, very strict my dad was a Marine. So he was like, if you're not bleeding and your hair's not on fire, you're fine. Both of my parents parented primarily from fear, from a place of fear. Um, so there was a lot of authoritarianism. There was a lot of control. There was a, you know, we didn't really have much of a voice. There was a like, we're going to scare you straight kind of stuff happened in my household. So I made a, I made a promise to myself that I was not going to parent my kids out of fear. And I'm not going to say that never happened, but you know, I mean, obviously there are times where you get really scared and you know, you just react from that place. But I, I really, really tried not to do that. And the other thing that my parents didn't do was see us as discrete human beings, you know, and like, there was this, like our behavior reflected on them somehow, but our needs and desires and emotions were not important. They were not, unless they aligned with my parents. And so that's the other thing I did was to really listen to my kids and and try to understand who they were and what their perspectives were and believe them when they told me. My youngest has sensory processing disorder. And you know when she would come to me and when she was little, just when she first started school with these struggles around certain things, instead of just saying to her, my parents would have said, suck it up, figure out how to follow the rules, sit still. And if I hear about you getting in trouble at school again, you're going to get spanked. Right. And, and I made it a point to sit down with her and just say, you know, help me understand. And I, so I believed her, you know, I would believe my kids when they told me what was going on with them. And that was very, very different from the way that I was parented. Is there anything you swore you would never do as a parent 
that you absolutely have done. I feel like there's those things before you have kids that you think you know better and you're like, oh, oh yeah. I would never do blah, blah, blah. And then when you actually are in the trenches, you're like, okay, I get it now. Is there anything that comes up for you like that? Oh, I mean, I swore I was not going to have a kid who used a pacifier and both of my kids were total binky babies. It was the only thing that saved me. I swore I was not going to co-sleep and both my children slept in my bed until, you know, for years. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I, I swore that I, that I wasn't going to, you know, try to fight battles for them. You know, I'm going to let them fight all their own battles. And that absolutely didn't happen. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a, you know, I wasn't like a total helicopter parent, but there were times where I would be like, "Mm, it's going to be a lot more efficient and effective if I step in and start advocating right now. (laughs) So yeah, that definitely happened. You know, there was like, you just don't know who your kids are until they start forming their own identity. Right. And so when my youngest came to me at 17 and said, I'm not old enough to legally get a tattoo, but I've just designed this beautiful tattoo and I really want it. And it's super important to me. And it speaks to who I am as a person. I let her get a tattoo, right? Like it, that was not anything I ever would have imagined. I was going to let my 17 year old go get a tattoo, but it was super important to her and it is, it's who she is. And you know, yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, cause like you said, you don't know, you don't know your kid until you know them. And part of it for me too, was like, I didn't know who I was going to be as a parent until I was one. There's that gap of knowledge and understanding too, where you're like, something might sound on paper, like this makes sense. And then when you're actually stepping through that, you're like, oh, that, that doesn't make sense for me, for them, for us, for our relationship. That doesn't yeah. make sense for our relationship. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah I definitely had lots of ideas about sleep that turned out to not be oh, true. Absolutely. I did the same thing, right? Like I'm not going to co-sleep and I'm going to do sleep training. And that was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. I can't imagine what it was like for my first child, I, but it was horrific. And yeah. And do you feel like, I feel like now I can look back and like my child is 10. Now, like now that I know her better, I didn't know her when she was a baby. Now that I know her better, I'm like, of course that didn't work because she's her and I'm me. I'm like, of course that wasn't going to work. But I didn't know that then, you know, like we didn't know each other very well yet. Um, That's how you learn some of these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I honestly think that's what we need to be doing with our teenagers still, right? Is to normalize that kind of stuff for them. Like I I remember I wrote this blog post about, are we expecting, do we want our kids to learn things or are we just expecting them to know things, right? Because you can't know something without learning it. But we do that a lot with teenagers. You know, we just expect them to know or we expect them to like make that mistake once. And then you just need to know now from now on. And that's, Teenagers are built to try things on. That's why their brains are developing the way they're developing is so that they can bump up against the world in like a million different ways and figure out what feels right and what doesn't and what works and what doesn't. I mean, I don't know about you, but I had like the whole goth phase when I was in high school, right? I also had the big hair band, heavy metal, you know, Motley Crue phase kind of thing which by the way, would not have lasted nearly as long as it did if it wasn't for my parents hating it (laughs) so much, right? They're like, 
if you play that Judas Priest album backwards, there's satanic messages in it. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome, right? <laughs> now I want to listen to it even more. You know, that's their job, right? And they're going to make mistakes and they're going to screw up. But the whole point of adolescence, like the most important thing they can do is develop their identity within this safe container of, I live at home with my parents who love me. And so normalizing that whole idea of like, you don't even know who you are yet. Figure it out. It's okay. Some things are going to work and some things aren't cool. Okay. Figured that out. (laughs) Let's move on. This is your job right now is to just mess around with the stuff and figure it out that then the easier it is for them to engage in that. You know, I think about the fact that if we normalize this dynamic in adolescence where people are, you know, trying to understand their own identity, um, I think too about people's pronouns and their gender identity, right? And, you know, I've heard sort of the, it's like sort of the straw man argument about this of like, oh, what if my teen wants to go by a different name every other week or change their pronoun? It's like, yeah, they're an adolescent. That is a thing that can happen. And if we normalize this kind of, you know, freedom to explore, then that doesn't have to become this false problem. It's not a problem. If someone is trying to understand their identity, that doesn't have to be a problem. Right. Exactly. And it's, I mean, like I used to say to my kids all the time, nothing is forever. Right. But, but as adults, a lot of times we do, especially with adolescents, you know, whether we're, we're the parent or the auntie or the uncle or the teacher or the school counselor or the coach, we pretend like the decisions that you make right now are going to affect the whole rest of your life. Right. So if you decide you've been playing basketball your whole life and you suddenly get into high school and you're a sophomore and you decide you want to go try musical theater instead, you can't do that. You can't do that because basketball was going to be your ticket to college, right? Like you, we pretend those things or that I can remember when my oldest was applying to colleges and, you know, she was so nervous. She was like, what if I choose the wrong school? What if I choose a school? And I absolutely hate it. And I was like, guess what? You get to change schools. <laughs> like, that's a thing. You like, she's like, well, what if I can't make it through my freshman year? I'm like, then you come home at Christmas and we start applications, but we somehow set up this false notion for adolescents that it's like do or die time. And we go, you can have a gap year. You know what? You can have 14 gap years if you want to, honestly. Yeah. That's actually something I'm really interested in is the idea of high stakes adolescence um, and the extent to which schools, I think sometimes really drive that narrative that like, you better get this right. Like, don't screw it up. What do you think is the fear there? Like, what do you think is behind that? I think it's that we've all, we all drank the Kool-Aid. Like we all just were like, there's the system out there. And, and, you know, if you're going to be quote unquote successful with a capital S, you have to do all the things that, you know, the system wants you to do, right? You know, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I took the SAT my senior year. And there was like a weekend little prep thing, you know, that I took like the month before. And then I took the test. These kids are taking PSAT classes and then the PSAT for a year. And then the PSAT again, their sophomore year. And then they're taking an SAT prep class. And then they're taking the SAT three or four times, but it's become this system thing. And all that I can remember saying to other parents, my kid is going to 
not take the PSAT. Might I'm going to send her to this, you know, prep thing, and then she's going to take the SAT once. And parent and all these other parents were like, "You can't do that to her. That's not okay. You know, you're not giving her a, a chance." A lot. And I was like, "I'm not going to have my kids really stressed out for four solid years." about this one test score that now California state schools don't even take anymore. Yeah. I think the fear is if you step outside of that box, then like question mark, like who knows, like chaos reigns. I think that some of this is not just helicopter parents. Like, I, you know what I mean? I think there's other pressures no, and understand I just think there's this whole narrative around like what it's supposed to look like, you know, I mean, when my kids were um, applying to colleges, it was like, you have to apply to at least one Ivy, even if you don't want to go there, because everybody should apply to one. And uh, and it's like, okay, well, every application costs like $150. So the more schools you apply to, like, that's insane. Why would I apply when I know that their acceptance rate is like 0.3%? Like what, what's the point of that? Right. But these schools are like, we want to be able to say, you know, that our kids were confident enough to apply to, you know, these kinds of schools. We're really, really good at building systems that center themselves instead of centering the people that they're supposed to be serving. And so we create these systems and then the systems have systems that keep them going. Right. So there's like the AP classes and the gifted programs and the, you know, all the extracurriculars, the the zero period, the first time I ever heard about a zero period, I almost fell off my freaking chair. It's like these kids start school at 730 in the morning. And now there's a zero period band or computer class. You want them to go at 630 in the morning. What are you insane? Oh, and I have to pay the like booster club for that because that teachers, you know, I mean, the there's this system that says that even the public schools within the same town and the same district have to compete with each other because if parents have choice, then, you know, we have to say what sets us apart. It perpetuates itself. People and parents buy into it, right? Because especially if you are not a parent of a privileged child, right? If you're a single parent, if you are a family of color, if you are a family who like this, your kid will be the first generation of kids who might go to college, you feel like you're already at a disadvantage. And so you have to run even faster on that treadmill just to keep up with everybody else. It is hard. It's terrifying to think I might fail my kid if I choose not to play this game. Right. The stakes do feel too high right? Like even for people who are like, oh, I hate all of this. It's I, I've talked to parents who, and I know, and Jessica Leahy wrote about this in her book too, The Gift of Failure, where even people who say like, I don't like this. I'm stressed out. I don't want to do any of these things. There's a feeling that I don't have a choice. The stakes are too high. What, whatever that unnamed alternative might be, right? Um, right. It feels too fraught. Um, or we've invested too much time in this already. Yes, that's a that's a big one too, right? We've gone so far down this path. And that's such a like, that's such a faulty human mindset, right? It's such a trap, but it's like so human. Like, well, I've come this far. Right. <laughs> I better not stop now. Um, I've been playing basketball for all these years. Yeah. Like it feels like a loss to walk away. Absolutely. But that's such a trap. Yeah, I think schools 
and parents play a role in perpetuating that mindset. Can you say a little bit about how you, how you decided where your kids would go to school? I was a Montessori kid and I just really loved it. I love the multi-age classroom. You know, I love the um, freedom of being able to have some sort of agency in my own education. Like I get to kind of, you know, choose the Montessori school where they went only went up through third grade. And then um, they had to transfer to the public school, which was fine. And that was my choice, but it became clear pretty quickly that the transition to public school after Montessori was really, really hard. Like sitting in the same desk all day, you know, not being able to move your body, you know, like my kids were bored and restless and frustrated and um, really chafed at that. And so then um, they ended up going to an independent school in Seattle called Seattle Girls School, which fifth through eighth grade. And it was much more experiential. It was really social justice oriented. Um, the class sizes were small and about 60% of the kids were on scholarship. And so it was a really diverse community, ethnically, socioeconomically, racially, um, it was right in the central district in Seattle, which is a historically black part of Seattle. And that was really great for them to have. That's where I actually started developing my social emotional learning curriculum was because of I was doing a lot of chaperoning and carpool driving and spending a lot of time with these girls and looking at like how they were struggling to relate to each other because it was such a diverse group of kids and and during this time where they're all really socially driven. And so I started to develop the curriculum around how can we have difficult conversations with each other and how can we help each other develop in these ways that feel relational and loving. So that was really fabulous for both of my daughters to have that experience. And then my oldest decided she wanted to go to a prep school. She's the kid that like, the traditional school system was created for like, she's that like color coding her lecture notes and, you know, like she's totally that kid. So she really thrived in that setting. And my youngest ended up doing community college. She ended up just doing community college and got an associate's degree at the same time that she would have graduated from high school because she's a musician and she has sensory processing disorder and the whole notion of going to like a traditional high school experience was frankly made her want to unzip her skin and crawl out of it. It was just brutal. So being able to have the flexibility, um, to sort of architect her own education. And I think also having been in those multi-age classrooms, being at community college was great for her because there were people who were in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 60s in her classrooms. And the kinds of conversations she was having were rich and diverse and fascinating. So um, very different experiences because they were very different human beings. It's funny when you were saying that, I was thinking about how all of my friends when I was in high school, it was like almost none of us like made it through that traditional trajectory like so many of my friends ended up doing what you described that your youngest daughter did or like finding that alternative school for or something it's like there's so many kids out there for whom that traditional school environment 
it's just not going to work. And there's other people who sort of gut it out and they, you know, they make it through, but what could have been possible, right? If they'd been able to access some other way of learning. I was that kid that like, you know, could do the traditional high school thing in my sleep, but knowing, like looking back now, I don't think I really started learning anything until I got to college. I was awesome at memorizing and regurgitating when I was in high school. But again, what we know about how people, how human beings learn, which is in relationship, you know, it wasn't until I was in college where I was choosing my own classes, where I was, you know, having those really engaged conversations where I was able to, you know, go to my professor after class and say, I don't, didn't understand any of that. Can you figure out a different way to explain that to me? Right. I feel like I learned a ton in college and I can remember thinking, wow, wouldn't it be nice if high school was like this? You know, I can't, I don't remember anything that I learned when I was in high school that was, you know, from a textbook. And I can pretty much guarantee you my oldest daughter doesn't either, you know? So, so even if you're thriving, quote unquote, in that situation, are you actually learning? I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of learning that takes place in that traditional high school setting for anyone. I've had the same thought of like, if only we could bring some of that college model down to the high school. It's like, Mm -hmm. there are so many things that, you know, I think would be possible, but Mm -hmm. I know we're coming to the end of our time. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity. If you wanted to say anything more about your book, about the Mm -hmm. self project or anything else that we didn't touch on, you would want to to put out there or where people can find you online or any of that stuff. Yeah. So um, I'm easy to find online. Um, I'm either at carrieodriscollwriter.com or theselfproject.com. So um, yeah, I do, you know, I do consulting with educators and um, I run parent support groups for parents of teens. So I do nine week long parent groups where we talk about all sorts of different things. We talk about identity development. We talk about substance use. We talk about sort of parenting styles and things like that. And it's all on Zoom. The goals are not only just to get information, but also to to bounce ideas off of other parents and start to build community. Because I think there's a lot of shame around parenting teens. People think like, if your kid's a teenager, don't you have that figured out already? Like, shouldn't, you know, and if your kid acts out, that's on you, right? There's something wrong with you. So I love doing that kind of work with parents and just helping them understand, <laughs> you know, you're not alone. And here's some, you know, some tips and tricks to build relationship with your child so that, you know, you don't feel like it's this adversarial relationship until they leave your house. And you're not going to be able to foresee everything. You're not going to be able to, I mean, like I can remember people saying when my kids were in middle school, like just, you just have to keep up on every single new social media app that's out there. And it's like, first of all, that's not possible. It's absolutely not possible. Second of all, like what, what if I just start to have conversations with my kids around social media and like, what, why are you using, why would you choose that particular app? What is it about that particular app? And oh, let's see if we can figure out the pitfalls together and normalize the fact that they're going to screw up with social media, right? And there's going to be some probably dramatic, painful thing that's going to happen. But if you have a relationship with your kid and you've opened that door to the conversation about it already, then chances are they'll come to you and say, 
how do I untangle this? What do I do? Right. Instead of hiding it, hiding it, hiding it, and then feeling worse about themselves. And then eventually you're going to find out, and then you feel crappy about them. And like, nobody wins. But I've seen so many posts from adults, from educators being like, oh, like TikTok is ruining everything. TikTok is such a problem. TikTok, TikTok. As if like there's some, you know what I mean? Like as if there's something, you know, coded into just this app that is like controlling how teenagers behave. And every time I see it, like, I just want to read through the screen and be like, this is a tool that teenagers are using. And if they are using it in a way that you find problematic, frustrating, concerning, like the problem is not the app. The problem can't be the app. This is all just behavior and behavior is communication. So like what's going on here? And it just frustrates me to see that mindset of like, oh, they just need to ban TikTok. Like I'm sure if they, then all your problems would be solved, right? Yeah. Talk to your kid about who they are, what's important to them. What do we do? How do we ask for help when things go sideways? How do we know who's trustworthy enough to ask for help when things go sideways? Like those sort of basic life skills are going to serve you and your child so much better than saying, no, you can't do this ever until you don't live in my house anymore. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I really have enjoyed this conversation and getting to know more about your book. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this audio edition of Think of the Children. For more episodes or to subscribe, you can visit thinkofthechildren.substack.com. And while you're there, I'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. 